I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Elizabeth Acevedo on her new novel, Family Law. Elizabeth Acevedo is a Dominican-American national poetry slam champion and New York Times bestselling author. She is the author of the young adult novels The Poet X, With the Fire on High, and Clap When You Land. The Poet X is a New York Times bestseller, National Book Award winner, Carnegie Medal winner, and was shortlisted for the Waterstones Children's Book Prize. She was selected as the Young Poets Poet Laureate of 2022 by the Poetry Foundation. And today we're going to be talking about Elizabeth's first novel for adults, Family Law. Elizabeth, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. Tell us, first of all, then, how you would describe this novel. I would describe this as an intergenerational novel that follows six women as they navigate different stages of of their womanhood and their lives, preceding the three days before one of them has a living wake. And I want to talk about the the structure of the novel, because mm-hmm. the chapters are told sort of sequentially, the six women, the six um, different generations of women in this family, and the chapters are told about each woman. But more than that, one of the women, Ona, is the actual narrator of the story, and she narrates it in sort of different ways. So tell mm-hmm. us something more about the actual structure of the novel. So you realize, um, and this isn't a spoiler, but you do realize that the narrator is a very specific narrator early on, that she keeps interrupting the text, right? And, And it comes to light that Ona is collecting these stories, that as an anthropologist in the family, she has begun asking the other women questions about their lives. And so she is a participant in all of the narration and the point of views um, taking place. She offers context. She has asides in the middle of someone's uh, reverie. And she's also including the interviews that she's doing. So you'll see the formatted interviews for one for each character that's being conducted. So there's a lot of windows into the story that a character, a narrator like Ona, provides for us. She almost, I think, holds the reader's hand a little bit because it can get a little complicated with six characters, um, all of the different point of views and a lot of flashbacks. 
And so Ona is kind of the handhold that the reader has to not only navigate the different point of views, but also to contextualize a lot of it. That when we're talking about the span of 70 years, there's a lot of historical, um, cultural context that can be missed. And so she's a narrator that really gives us some background and allows, I think, a reader to feel a little bit safer within the pages that they have someone um, who's holding them and, and making sense of some of the things that are a bit outside of the scope of more, most of our experiences. To what extent do you think, if any, your work as a poet has influenced how you wrote this novel? Oh, certainly a good bit. <laughs> I, um, I think I have a very musical ear. And so a lot of the book is driven by rhythm. A lot of the cadence of, of um, exposition, of, of even dialogue is written with my ear towards sound and prosody. And so on that level, it's very poetic. But I think some of the chances that I take with how things look on the page, whenever a character drops into a deep memory, when they're going particularly far back, the actual page, the text on the page drops. It's um, right aligned. And you can kind of see the way that I'm trying to play with space on the page, with how the blank page looks, with how even a sentence can take up space. And so there's movement that's happening on the text. It's probably more of a poetic sensibility than I think a fiction writer with how it looks. And the images, I rely heavily on images and metaphor in order to to arrive where I need a text to arrive in a way that perhaps someone who is staunchly a fiction writer without a poetic or poetry background might perhaps write it differently. So the story is about the six sisters, um, or not mm-hmm. six, sorry, not six sisters, there are four sisters and two daughters of those sisters who are the, the main focus of the novel. But maybe, I mean, maybe this is debatable, but Floor, who is the sister who has set up the um, the living wake, which sort of kicks off the plot of the novel, is maybe the, the main protagonist, shall we say, um, if that's not Ona, who is actually narrating the story. So let's talk about Floor, first of all. So mm-hmm, who is she? Mm-hmm. So Floor is not technically the eldest, but is looked to as the eldest, eldest sister. And... She is a woman who can tell when people are going to die, and she's been able to do so since she was a child. So her relationship to life and is a little bit untethered is how she would describe it. She's just not quite as present because she just has this um, this kind of background noise of there is this other side that people come from and that they return to. And she's kind of aware of it all of the time. So she's a little bit aloof, except when it pertains to her daughter. Then she's or, or like someone she's deeply, deeply loves. Then she's, um, it's like a little light bulb turns on and she can have very human sensibilities. And then she kind of returns back to her, her distant self. But she has had a dream and that's how the book opens. And she decides to throw herself a living wake. So this idea of the, the foresight that she has, this is something that runs in the family in different ways. Mm-hmm. So a, a sort of kind of magic and those previous generations have had this as well one other sister that has a sort of version of this so how does this magic work in the in the various generations of the family I think that figuring out how the magic works was actually one of the really interesting things because I didn't want to follow the typical way that fantasy is written where there's a real um, world building around how magic functions I wanted it to feel like an everyday 
magic that is very definitively there, unquestioned, but doesn't take up too much space in terms of explanation. They don't they don't really know how it works. Uh, one of the sisters doesn't have magic and, and no one really questions that she doesn't have magic. It, it's just kind of accepted that, you know, strange things happen to strange people. And so the magic arrives at different points in time and in the different women's lives. It manifests to a very great extent, like with Flord or with another sister, Pastora, who can tell if someone is lying and so walks through the world a little bit jaded and is as small as one of the cousins, one of the younger generations who inherited a taste for limes, which means that she can kind of sense her grandmother whenever she eats a lime, um, feels her grandmother with her. So one of the other sisters who's an herbalist. And so some very simple, very, I would call light magic, and then some magical realism that is a little bit more at the forefront. And I think it, it kind of navigates how people in different families might have, you know, talents that are, are rather large and take up a lot of room. And and then there's like quieter talent, quieter quirks that make someone a little bit who they are, but but doesn't preoccupy a family's understanding of itself. And the, uh, the living wake, where did she get this idea? So Flor's daughter, who's an anthropologist, um, mentions this documentary and Flor is very interested in being considered relevant to her daughter. And so she she hunts down the streaming site and the in the documentary and while she's watching this documentary on on rituals and on death practices there's a snippet on on a living wake that she kind of is intrigued by she she doesn't go looking for a thing to do but she she kind of stumbles upon um this practice at a moment where it was really exactly what she needed exactly what she was looking for was a a way to respond to a dream that she had and so it's her relationship. I think Ona and Flor's relationship is um, one of the scaffolds of how the rest of the novel is held. It's um, all the different relationships, but those two main ones really uh, help us navigate time, help us navigate the wake, right? The, the central conceit of the wake, as well as I think some of the questions that are being asked of the different characters around around love and, and choice making. It's Ona looking to her mom and her mom looking to Ona and, and both of them trying to understand the different choices they've had to make. And Flora's also relatively recently lost her husband, Pedro, um, and grief is another one of the, the themes of the book in all different forms. So tell us something about the theme of grief in the novel. I wanted to consider um, if someone knows in advance and what knowing in advance might do for closure. Um, and if someone knows in advance and also perhaps has a different relationship with dying, what it could do. But it's unavoidable, right? That regardless, I think, of how you consider afterlife, the loss of someone is just, right? It's a world. We lose a world. We lose so much whenever someone leaves. And so I think that, I think Florida is, is really trying to consider is there a way to make it easier? She who has experienced so much death and knows so much about dying. Can she offer something different that that might ease, right? And and she arrives kind of at her own answer. But I think it is a contemplation of is grief avoidable or can grief be lessened? Can it be eased? And is there such a thing as dying well? And if you take it upon yourself to be mindful of, you know, I want to live well and die well, does that do something different for yourself, for how you approach dying and for your family? And 
I um I listen to a lot of interviews with death doulas, uh, with folks who who sit with people while they're dying and um listen to their regrets and their their last moments and what they wish they had done differently or what they were really proud of having done and really tried to consider this this question of of how we grieve, how we grieve even while we're here, our own past and our own lives and approach it, but also the people around folks who are maybe chronically ill or dying and and trying to make peace in advance with what might come. And just tell us something a bit more about Ona, about Flo's daughter, the narrator of the story, a bit more about who she is, and maybe perhaps her own particular magical ability. (laughs) So Ona, our narrator, is a social anthropologist, and she mainly looks at the Dominican Republic within the last two centuries. So 1800s to early 2000s is her her focus. And although she does a lot of um, post-Columbian history as well. And she's uh, very urban. She was born and raised in New York City, unlike her cousin, unlike her the rest of her extended family. She has a lot of influence from hip hop and from being in this setting. And her magical ability is that she has an alpha vagina. She is someone who is in full control of um, not only her her menstrual cycle, but also her pleasure. She has a different relationship to to shame and pleasure than some of the other women in her family um, because of this uh, magical connection to her genitalia. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Listed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Elizabeth Acevedo. We're talking about her novel, Family Law. And Elizabeth, 
You mentioned earlier that Floor is not the oldest sister, but she's sort of treated like mm -hmm. the oldest sister. The actual oldest sister is Mathilde. Tell us something about who she is. So Matilde is, she's considered soft, right? I think her her sisters would describe her as just being too nice, too quiet, too um, willing to do for others and self-sacrificing to the point of um, her own joys, her own wants and needs are are very rarely met. She's in a relationship with someone that is, it is well known in the family, is a philander. and. She kind of just like privately and quietly grieves the marriage she wished she had while publicly either defending or very stoically enduring her her family's rancor on her behalf that she's in such a, a difficult relationship. And she doesn't have a magical ability. She's uh, she was unable to have children. So a lot of the the ways that the other characters hinge their personhood on on these characteristics. Um, Matilda doesn't have those same kind of holds on who she is. Um, she She's different, reflected differently than the rest of her, her siblings. And so she kind of has to cobble together a sense of self without the things that, that her sisters are able to hold on to. And I, I think while Flor and Ona may be the main characters, Matilda may have the most complete character arc. Um, purposefully, right? I, I didn't want every arc to be super cleanly developed and and follow a hero's journey, but I do think Matildes is is the closest I got to a structurally sound character who is really contemplating at seventy three. Can I make different kinds of choices, and can I upend my life? Is that a possibility? We won't give too much away about this story about how Matilda gets her groove back. But um, <laughs> tell us something more about Rafa, who is her husband, a famous philanderer and absolute monstrous <laughs> character. Um, Rafa is, is at one point one of the, the sisters. Is like, I think he's just a narcissist or he's just someone who has to be in the limelight. And he uh, was a nightlife singer in the Dominican Republic and into nightlife and is in love with the sound of his own voice, in love with the shine, and very much is very smart when he picks a woman who is maybe a little bit okay with being cast in the shadow and just so happy at being chosen that she lets him be exactly who he wants to be. But it's not enough, right, to have her adoration. He needs the adoration of every single person and every single woman, woman that he meets. And um, you find out very, very early on in the second chapter that it is suspected that Rafa got a much younger woman pregnant. And being that he and Matilde could not have children, this is a, a huge blow and a huge catalyst, I think, to the kinds of changes that their relationship undergoes. But you know, he's. I don't write a lot of um, staunchly evil characters or black and white characters. I try to give everyone a little bit of gray. But Rafa was someone who I just knew very early on. Like narcissism doesn't always allow a lot of gray unless you really delve into someone's maybe childhood or, or how they were raised in such a way that allowed them to to be less empathetic towards others or why they weren't psychologically treated um, when it was known that they were incapable. Of thinking about others, but I didn't. I didn't want to go too far into Rafa's past outside of when he met Matilde. And so, we just kind of have to accept that Rafa is one of those people who 
cannot see beyond himself um, at, at any point in time. He is the center. No, I think sometimes we meet people where we have to just say, oh, this is the most you have to give me in this moment. And Rafa is that. There's a scene early on where we see their wedding night uh, mm-hmm. where Rafa behaves terribly. And at that point in the novel, I'm thinking, oh, is this, you know, is Rafa just a bastard or is is this a, a sort of insight into, you know, Dominican masculinity in general? But then he's also contrasted with his own brother, Manuelito, who is Pastora's husband, who is a completely different man. Tell us something while we're here about, because we're going to talk about Pastora next, but we may as well talk about Manuelito first. Manuelito is... He probably picked the most difficult sister in Pastora and is just the most patient. He he doesn't have a lot of appearance. He goes to the Dominican Republic right at the beginning of the book. And so you only see him in the memories that, that Pastora has of him. But he's he's just kind, right? Just someone who I think is really thoughtful and really accepting of other people and, and who shows up and works hard in the way of of someone who considers themselves a provider, but is is really supportive of his wife. And I think you learn as you navigate the novel and, and you get to the end and you see Pastora and Manolito's love story that he sort of needed to be that because Pastora is has such a bitter relationship with everyone because everyone is always lying. And so she she couldn't really tolerate someone who who wasn't going to be pretty upfront. And you learn that like she knows when he's fibbing and like that's fine. Like she kind of will let that hum. But big lies, he he doesn't have that. He's he's open. He's a he's a kind of maybe the man that I think a lot of my generation of cousins wish we had as a father who was attentive and thoughtful and um incredibly kind and open. And so for me it was um maybe creating these foils in in Rafa and Manuelito and this contrast of um, what the difference of someone who is incredibly supportive and loving can do for a woman and and for a relationship and um, stand as a pillar to let you launch yourself or make you retreat within yourself. So I think these these two men are very much in contrast. And so Pastora, who we've already described, she's something of an abrasive personality. She, when we think about Flaw's magic, which is to to foresee somebody's death, can maybe seen be seen as a gift, maybe a curse. But Pastora's gift to always know when people are lying just seems like a, a curse, like a terrible burden to carry. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us something more about her. Yes, Pastora is uh, one of the first descriptions that I wrote of her, and that people see of her is her tongue has never known silk. Right, she is. Whatever the definition of sharp-tongued is, that is exactly where she is because she just she just doesn't have time for the bullshit. I don't know if, if I can say that, but she doesn't have time for the the kinds of um, ways people present themselves and consider themselves. But she's she's also very underneath the surface, so anxious about her family. I think she just has such a sense of the kinds of deceit that the world projects and has and and will convey that she's really, really protective over her daughter, over her sisters, over those she deeply loves. She is always trying to, it comes off cross as passing judgment, but it's, she perceives it as I'm just trying to protect you, right? And and I think her childhood story and, and maybe one of the ways that she really learned this trust um, and also learned how deeply she was loved 
doesn't really allow for her to make a lot of room for for other people, doesn't allow for her to be super hopeful. She she struggles with that. And so she's a character that who her husband leaves early on and is kind of bereft because she's left the more optim or the more optimistic side of the partnership has left. And she has to navigate these three days before the wake of of her most beloved sister, right? And it, it's clear early on that Flor and Pastora are each other's light in terms of their siblinghood. Like they they look to each other at all times. And and because she has been listening to Flor uh, talking about her wake, she knows the truth of this wake. She knows what is coming and, and she is carrying that and the weight of it on her own. But if you have an aunt who is just a very no-nonsense, um, tells it like it is, just one of those stalwart women. That's who you can picture when you when you are picturing Pastora. And Pastora's daughter, Yadi, early in the story, we see her reunited with her childhood sweetheart, Ant, who has just returned from a long prison sentence. Um, tell us something about Yadi. Uh, Yadi was raised in the Dominican Republic and arrived to New York City much later. She was uh, nine years old. And her her gift is um, a gift, a taste for limes. She was really close with her grandmother. She was sent to the Dominican Republic after her childhood love was incarcerated um, and she fell into a deep depression. And her relationship with her grandmother saved her life. And I think she knows that. And although all of the other women have different relationships with her, with the grandmother and, um, and struggle with their relationship with the grandmother, Yadira's relationship with her was completely different. And so Yadira serves as an example for how people can be, can manifest themselves in varying ways with different family members. But she also serves as, as someone who is carrying physically, right, in some ways, because her gift is related to her grandmother. She carries her grandmother's spirit um, with her anywhere that, that she goes. And so she's, she's someone where I was really thinking about ancestors and and who carries them and how we say their names and how we bring them into rooms and and the complications of who people were you know early in their lives and maybe when they were later and more mature in their lives they just come across differently but she's she's a very anxious character all the characters are somewhat anxious right but she's someone who is really struggling with anxiety and depression and takes medication and does deep breathing exercises and was completely unprepared for her childhood love to one day just show up, um, especially in this crucial moment where the family is is trying to undergo what it means to to prepare for this wake. And so there are choices that that your dear has to make around and her childhood love that um, she was not looking forward to ever having to make. And there's one other sister, Camilla, who we've sort of run out of time to talk about, but that's quite appropriate because she's described <laughs> as the forgotten one in the book. Um, mm-hmm. So to finish this off, can I get you to read us a bit? Yes. So one of the interviews, Ona conducts interviews and they are interspersed throughout the novel. And one of the very first ones that we see is Floyd. And as a reminder, Floyd is the sister who can tell when someone is going to die and has always felt a little bit not tied down to the world. It begins with the body for me. I have sometimes felt like an occupant in this flesh, something that is being hosted. And so I had my first love, although looking back, those were a youngster's emotions. I truly became human when I became pregnant with you. Nothing, 
not even making love, had ever arrived me to my own body like growing another person. It was primal, physical, the sensations that became new to me. I would wake up and brush my teeth, and the moment the toothbrush touched my tongue, I would begin to gag, a visceral shock from the dream world to the body. You know me, Ona. I struggle with decisions sometimes. But from the moment I learned I was carrying you, the most animal of choices became easy. What do I want to eat? Not that. Not that. Yes. This. I would stand at my station at the button factory and hunger, urinating, resting, were sensations as loud as the machines whirring around me. The cues were urgent, unignorable. I have never known so clearly what I wanted and needed at almost all times. I remember one day walking through Morningside Park. You know that patch by 110th where the baseball fields are? They had just mowed it, the tractor not yet having rolled off the field. And I swear to you, I wanted to drop to my knees. The grass smelled alive, the milk of each cut blade sweetening the air. And I felt like my nose picked up every single drop of dew. I'd known beautiful fields and admired trees and birds. But with a second heartbeat in my body, my senses were newly electrified. You grounded me here with both feet on both knees, stooped on all fours, heaving to bring you forth. I have known death since before I was born, but I had not truly known life until I gave it to you. Well, I've been talking to Elizabeth Acevedo. We've been talking about her debut novel for adults, Family Law, which is out in the UK from Canongate. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much, Neil. It was a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89UP. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.